good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. We invite all who are able to stand for our first lesson this morning. It comes to us from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Listen now to God's Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone, for the Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once again, those who are able are invited to stand out of respect for God's Word. Our second lesson comes to us from the 28th chapter of the book of Acts. I don't know about you, but I've kind of enjoyed these past 26 weeks that we have been in the book of Acts, but it now comes to an end as we consider chapters 27 and 28. That's, that's, that's half a year we've been studying this book of God's people empowered by the Holy Spirit and looked most closely at the life of Paul in these past weeks. Let me remind you that Paul was in Jerusalem and tried and then moved to the court in Caesarea, appeared before Felix and Festus. They did not find any fault with him, but Paul demanded as a Roman citizen that he be tried before Caesar where it was Paul's intent that he go to Rome with the gospel. And so, in chapter 27, they depart from Caesarea Philippi. They hopscotch through the islands of the Aegean Sea, the Mediterranean, on their way to Italy. But that chapter is like the book, the movie, The Perfect Storm, because the ship is always beset by poor weather and by a storm. It even comes to pass that in the 27th chapter that the, uh, a great storm comes against the ship and everybody on it is very afraid. It's kind of like 
the image of the church is, has been through centuries been characterized as a ship on the sea. And we're kind of in a, an ark, a vessel of sorts, and there's a storm going on outside. I saw some lightning. We heard thunder. That was not Fort Benning. But yet Paul was assured in a vision from God that not one person on the ship would be lost. That they would all survive. But they had to stay with the ship. There were some who wanted to get on the lifeboats and, and save themselves, but Paul said, no, all have to stay. They cut the lifeboats loose. They jettisoned all of their extra tackle and weight. There comes a time when they throw all the food overboard. And then they even cut loose the anchors of the ship as the storm rages. And they are driven aground. But the ship does not survive. The ship is blown apart by the sea, by the ravaging waves. But those upon it who were able to swim were close enough to make it. And those who could not swim, we are told at the end of chapter 27, that they grabbed hold to pieces of the wreckage. But they were willing to let go of all of their securities to hold fast to the promise of God and trust in Him for their salvation. And not one on the ship was lost. And so they are wrecked on the island of Malta. Then they make another little trip, and then they have to winter in a port for three months. And we're going to pick up there in chapter 28. The Word of God. Listen with ear and with heart and open mind. After three months, we set sail in a ship which had wintered in, in, the, in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with twin brothers as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putoli. And there we found brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard of us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want us to camp on that little phrase. I want us to dwell on it today. I want you to carry it with you from this place into this week to come. The phrase that Paul thanked God and took courage when he saw the brothers and sisters from Rome that came out to meet him as he was on his way to that great city. Paul thanked God and took courage. Several weeks ago when I was reading these chapters, preparing for this sermon, a sermon that I heard probably 30 years ago leapt to my mind. 
a sermon that I heard in the chapel of the Columbia Theological Seminary Chapel preached by my New Testament professor, Dr. Will Ormond. And I went looking for the sermon. I found it in a book of his sermons entitled Preaching Eyes for Listening Ears. It turns out it was not the first time that he preached it, but he had first preached the sermon in 1983, but preached it again in the chapel of Columbia Seminary. I think it says a lot about Dr. Orman as a preacher that this young seminarian would remember 30 years. And I'm glad to say that Dr. Orman was not only my professor, but my friend. After I had taken his courses and was on in my seminary career, I uh, befriended him and he me, and he asked me to travel with him on occasion to be his valet, or in Greek, his doulos. <laughs> and these two guys know what a doulos is. Doulos is Greek for slave. I was Dr. Orman's slave. I carried his bags. I drove him where he needed to go. But it was an incredible relationship. So the sermon that you're going to hear this morning is essentially Dr. Orman's sermon that I remember from 60 years ago. But I think so poignant, not only for that time, but for this one as well. Dr. Orman began his sermon saying it's not always easy to remember where one was or what, was one, what one was doing on a particular day 20 years ago. And remember, that was 1983. So that would harken back to 63. The day that he was referring to was November 22nd, 1963. Those among us who were late 50s, even 60, you will probably remember where you were on November 22nd, 1963. I was a little bit young then. I don't remember, but maybe you do. On that day, our president was shot while visiting Dallas, Texas. Dr. Orman begins by remembering that day. He says he was helping a friend move into his new house, and they had a little portable radio sitting on an empty shelf. And suddenly the program was interrupted, and the news came across that the president had been shot in Dallas. But the extent of his injuries were not known, and so some hope was revived. Maybe it's not so bad. It can't be. It simply can't be. But soon the ominous announcement came that the president was dead. A bullet had shattered his brain. The horror, the grief, the senselessness of it all swept over us, Dr. Orman said. My friend and I abandoned our work. We returned to our homes, depressed, sickened, confused, bewildered. He went on after I had had a little while to try to get things back into focus. It dawned on me, Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. You see, Dr. Orman was pastoring a church in 1963 and just outside of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And he had a sermon to preach. And he had prepared to read the presidential Thanksgiving proclamation and preach a Thanksgiving sermon, but he said suddenly it all seemed so ironic. The president who had called the nation to Thanksgiving was now dead, and the nation was plunged into mourning. My Thanksgiving sermon seemed shallow and superficial. What could I say? How could I change the sermon so that it made any kind of sense in circumstances such as this? Wouldn't it be better to simply cancel Thanksgiving and fall into grief and despair and uncertainty? 
He said, I must admit, I do not remember what I did that thanks, with that Thanksgiving sermon, but we did not cancel Thanksgiving that year. And now Thanksgiving is upon us again. Here we are on the Thanksgiving, the Sunday before Thanksgiving week, and what is the mood of our time in our nation, in our world? Perhaps we would not all agree on the answer to that question, but is it a mood of settled tranquility? Is it a mood of calm certainty, assured peace, of happy unity, with a warm feeling of well-being among all? It doesn't seem so. In his sermon, Lo, all those many years ago, Dr. Orman at that time pointed to an, a passenger jet that had been shot out of the sky, losing all 269 passengers on board. He hearkened to the memory of the listeners of 250 Marines that were killed in a senseless suicide bombing act as they tried to watch over on the edges of a fratricidal war that seemed to have no good end. And then he said this, superpowers move their nuclear missiles about the face of the earth like grotesque chest pieces. They face each other like two people standing waist deep in gasoline arguing over the parity of their firepower because one has 10 matches and another 12. Can we not point to our own set of circumstances? Can, it, can we not identify with our own hopelessness and uncertainty, our own despair and wanting to fall into fear even on this Sunday before Thanksgiving? Iran, North Korea, suicide bombers, Ebola, racial tensions, school shootings, and on and on and on. By this time, some of you are thinking, what a gloomy way to start a Thanksgiving sermon. I could have stayed home with all those other people that woke up and found it raining and decided just to hunker down. But allow me to digress for just a moment about the weather. Because many times when I wake up on a Sunday when it is rainy and gloomy outside, I rejoice and give thanks to God. Because that means that there will be people who will be staying home from church or, or not going out and doing what they may ordinarily have planned for the day. And you know what that means? They might be tuning in to our television broadcast of this worship service. And so now we have on a gloomy day another opportunity to reach even more people with the saving knowledge of the good news of Jesus Christ. See, there's a silver lining. But I believe that perhaps beginning this, this Thanksgiving sermon in this way is not entirely incongruous. For it may be that against such a somber background that Thanksgiving, that we are not allowed to, to neglect the, the somber truth and deep power of Thanksgiving and avoid shallowness and superficiality of our Thanksgivings. Perhaps it is in times which do not naturally generate a welling up of thankful feeling that we need to seek and to recapture a genuine sense of gratitude. For the Christian, 
The Christian attitude of thanksgiving does not depend on the fickleness of our circumstances, which, which don't always have to be favorable, nor is our thankfulness based on uninterrupted victories and increasing triumphs in our lives. The Christian faith, however, is based on and motivated by thankfulness. Our faith and our ethic are grateful responses to God's deed on our behalf. And at the heart of God's deed for us is a cross. Yes, with the dark clouds of Calvary. Yes, with the sun blotted out at noonday and the tragic death of the one who did not deserve to die. If we believe that Jesus' death is for us, that He shed His blood on the cross to cleanse us of our sins, that His death conquers death, then we live out of gratitude, not to, try a, a, to pay a debt that we can never pay, not to try to earn a gift that we do not deserve, but to express our thanks to God for God's inexpressible gift to us in His Son. Therefore, thanksgiving is at its heart not uniquely a Christian secular holiday, but genuine thanksgiving is deeply theological and characteristically Christian at its core. And if this is true, then we would expect to find in the New Testament evidence of those who recognized the reality of life in this world, but who could give thanks to God in spite of it. There also must be examples of how Christians can be without consciously thinking about it, becoming sources of thanksgiving and courage for other people. And both such examples are evident in the experience of the Apostle, of the Apostle Paul. As we have followed Paul for the past 17 weeks in the book of Acts, we have seen it for ourselves where in Paul's life it was characterized by relentless travel, illness, conflict, those outside the church who had been his colleagues in conflict with those inside the church who were Christians. In Paul's life, we have seen that he has endured shipwreck, beatings, stoning, imprisonment, and yet, in spite of it all, Paul is ever thankful. A good example is in his letter to Philippians, which was read just a moment ago. He wrote, it, he wrote this letter more than likely when he was in the Roman prison that he is journeying to now at this point in his life at the end of Acts. He's facing an uncertain future. He doesn't know whether he's going to be set free or executed. But the letter literally pulsates with joy. Sixteen times in Philippians, Paul calls Christians, the church, to joy in the Lord. A characteristic line in the letter is his exhortation. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, now get this, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But Paul also had his times of depression, depression and despair. Let's not think he's some Pollyanna super optimist. No, he was real as well. For he wrote to the church in Corinth these words, So utterly, unbearably crushed are we that we despaired of life itself. He knew 
the depths and the reality of it. But on his voyage to Rome, so vividly described by Luke in the last two chapters of Acts, we see Paul who lived gratefully and confidently in the midst of danger and disaster. And we see also Paul himself who received from others what he needed at the time he needed it and was able to give thanks and to take courage. This morning, Paul is on his way to Rome by sea to appear before the high court in the land, the highest court in the land, the court of Caesar. And on the way, as I said, the ship encounters a violent storm which threatens the very lives of all who are on board. But through it all, Paul is the calm, he is the confident one giving directions, giving advice, giving encouragement, and even encouraging others to eat as they share a type of sacramental meal on the boat in the middle of a storm breaking bread and sharing the cup. And Paul all the while assuring them that none of them will be lost and none is lost because of their willingness to let go of all of their securities and to hold only to the promise of God and to trust in Him for their salvation. And they are indeed ship, shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and after being marooned for three months, they finally take the ship and make their way, another ship, and make their way to Rome, and they land on the coast of Italy, and be, they begin their last lap of the journey to Rome on foot, going along the famed Appian Way, as we read. We can only imagine Paul's thoughts as he draws near to the city. It's been a long, difficult voyage. And thus far, he has kept up his spirits and the spirits of those who have traveled with him. But could it be that now, near the end of the journey, that even the spirits of the great apostle Paul should begin to falter? What awaits him? What will he find in Rome? Will his fellow Jews receive him? He's been received by hosp with, with hostility by many other Jews in his travels. And he had written a long letter to the Christian community in Rome, but most of them do not know him by sight. Will they trust him? And especially when he shows up in chains, would they be sus suspicious of him? And what about Caesar? How would it go as he appears before the most mighty man in the land? And how long would it be before his case was heard? And what would the verdict be? Would it be freedom? Or would it be death? And step by step, Rome draws nearer, and Paul is, and his compassions pass all of these elaborate burial monuments that line the Appian Way. And the great city with its multitude of uncertainties looms ahead. But then something happens which makes all the difference. It's nothing spectacular. It's no blinding light. It's no voice from heaven like Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. What happens is so simple, it seems hardly worth recording. Or is it so significant that it must be told? Some of the Christians in Rome hear that Paul is on his way and they go out to meet him on the road. 
And this is how Luke tells it. So we came to Rome, and the brethren there, when they heard of us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. We can almost feel the relief in Paul's soul, the uplift in his spirit, the thankfulness in his heart. Paul did not have to wait to hear their greeting or their message. Their very coming to him conveyed their concern, their caring, their acceptance, and how powerful it is that they cared enough to come. Their actions speak louder than words. And they are communicating acceptance, welcome, encouragement. Their coming could not assure that the Jews would not be hostile. Their coming could, would, would not have any effect on Caesar's court or the verdict that Caesar would pronounce. But still on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And this simple scene leads Dr. Ormond to express thanks against the background of somber anxiety at the beginning of Thanksgiving week in 1983 and 1987. And by this same scene, we too can be heartened and give deep thanks and take courage in this Sunday before the week of Thanksgiving. This scene lead me, leads me to give thanks to God, deep thanks for the church of Jesus Christ, for it is in the church that we see others coming to meet us. Look around you. You did not come alone, but others came out to meet you, even today. As a part of the church, we can then also be those who, who hearing of others who are on an uncertain road can go out and meet them with care and concern and acceptance. And when they see us, they too may give thanks and take courage. You know, that's what we are called to do. It's what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ for the stranger, for the friend, and even for family. This past week, I had the occasion to visit one of our day school teachers who in the last week or so lost her mother in a very untimely manner. And as I spoke to her and asked how she was doing and told her that prayers had been and would continue to be lifted up for her, she said, let me tell you something. She said, in the last few weeks of my life, I have experienced more love, more encouragement, more strength, than I have experienced in all of my life up to that time. And it is because of this community. And it is what we are called to do. To go out and to meet those who are on the uncertain road and facing difficulty and being in despair and hopelessness. 
It's what we are called to do this week as we meet stranger or as we gather with friends that we know well or family that might be challenging. It's our opportunity to meet them where they are with love, acceptance, and concern so that they may give thanks and take courage. This scene that is given to us today in our Scripture also leads me to give deep thanks to God for Jesus Christ Himself. For Jesus knows about us human beings down here floundering in this world, facing what seem to be uncertain futures for us, Yet Jesus comes to meet us. And His coming is no casual thing. It is no pleasant stroll while the dew is still on the roses. No, His coming is in care and concern and acceptance and love. Because Jesus knows not only where we have been, Jesus knows where we are going and has already been there. and comes to meet us. Christ knows that we are on the road. Each one of us individually and as a church, Christ knows that we are on the road. And wherever we may be found, Christ comes to meet us. And therefore, my brothers and sisters, we too can give thanks and take courage. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.